0: diving into Mark chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Mark chapter 2. If you'll turn there. As you're turning there, I want to preface this by saying that the story that we are about to dive into is another story in a long line of stories about Jesus interacting with humanity. That's the series we're in. It's called Humankind. And it's one of the stories that we should find shocking, or at least surprising, as we read it. And let me just say, I think that there's a problem with Christianity. And I, uh, I, don't, I don't really apologize for saying these kinds of things, because I think we need to find authentic Christianity. I think we need to resurface this. There needs to be a renewal, a resurgence of authentic Christianity. We have sterilized certain aspects of the biblical narrative to the point that we have lost how dynamic and how shocking and how surprising many of these things are. And I think we forget sometimes that Jesus entered into a world where people had incredibly inaccurate understandings of who God is and how we related to him as people. And those misunderstandings of how we relate to him aren't just things that were excluded to that population then, but they are things that we experience today, misunderstandings that we have. And so Jesus came to bring clarity, much like uh, God giving the Israelites a new understanding of who he was as they were exiting the promised land. The book of Leviticus, he's telling them, no, I'm a different kind of God. I'm a God who's not like other gods. Jesus is a further revelation of him saying, no, you need to understand who God is. God is like what I'm sure showing you. And so these stories that Jesus is involved with, these stories that the gospel writers are giving to us, they should rattle our cage. They should shake our understanding. They should cause us to stop and think. And and it should challenge our presuppositions about who God is and the assumptions that we've made about how we relate to him. It should challenge those kinds of things because we need our understanding of who God is to be freshened up a bit, I think. Uh, it, It doesn't matter how new you are to this, it doesn't matter how long you've been around this, we need our understanding of God to be freshened up. We need to be focused, we need it to be sharpened, we need to understand what is it like to really walk with God as a faithful friend, as Casey talked about earlier. We need this relationship with him to be renewed and to be refreshed. So we come to this story, this is a skillfully told story with all sorts of surprises that I want to dive into and talk about. So I'm going to read it and then we're gonna unpack it. So Mark chapter two, beginning in verse one, we're gonna go to verse 12. It says this. It says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk? I think we lose a sense of what we're reading here because that really sums it up. We have never seen anything like this. This is shocking. In fact, this is not just shocking to us, it's shocking in in different ways to different people. In in the same way that it might be shocking to to us in different ways, it's shocking to the people in the room in different ways. Let me just point this out. If you look at this story, there are basically three different groups of people who were gathered in this story who represent really different perspectives, different experiences with Jesus. There's the friends of the paralytic, these men that lower him down. There's the, the readers of the story. There's people who received this gospel letter in the first century. There's those of us that are reading it right now. We're a part of the story because we are readers of this story. And then there's the leaders of the people, these scribes that are in the room who are amazed at what's happening but also questioning who Jesus is. And and I want to take just a moment and I want to talk about each of these because each one of them I think tells us something about our relationship with God and tells us something about how we connect with God and who God is and how we understand him. So I'm going to walk through each of these. So let's start with the first group. Let's start with the friends of the paralyzed man. And and I want to just take a moment, and I want you to imagine this. Because this alone is so incredible, it should make anyone who has questions about the authenticity of Jesus take a deeper look. Just imagine this. Jesus is teaching, right? He's teaching um, kind of like me right now. But he's not in an auditorium, he's not in a church anywhere, he's not in a synagogue. Jesus is teaching in a home. But I want you to imagine this. Jesus is teaching, and, and, and imagine taking place in this room. Imagine that while I am teaching, while I'm standing here, suddenly there's some sawdust that starts to fall from the ceiling in front of us. And imagine this, right? You just start seeing sawdust and there's a little bit of noise up there. You're kind of like, what's going on? You know, what's, what's happening above us? There's sawdust that's happening. But I press on, right? Because I'm a professional, I can work with distractions, crying babies, all sorts of things. I can do this, so I keep pressing on. But then daylight starts to poke open, right? And you're like, what is happening? If it's in Oregon, it's not daylight, it's rain. Rain starts to fall through the roof, right? And now everybody's looking up, like what is going on above us in this roof? And so if I'm teaching, just like Jesus did in this moment, I pause, and then we watch as this man gets lowered down into the room in front of us. This guy gets lowered down. That's what happens in this story. Um, By the way, let me just say this. No one has ever wanted to hear one of my sermons so bad that they cut a hole in the roof and lowered themselves down in to hear it, right? No one's ever done this. This has never happened to me. As far as I know, Jesus is the only one this has ever happened to, right? But I want you to think about this. They did this because their friend is paralyzed and Jesus has a reputation for healing people that are paralyzed. That was known, so known that they're going to this effort. Like it wasn't even a question. That we can't get him through the door. Let's go to the roof. Let's cut a hole. Let's lower him down. Because the moment we do, our friend's going to be healed. That's just a known conclusion that they've drawn. And so these guys, being the friends that they are, having compassion for their friend, they go to great lengths to see him healed. They do this amazing thing to see him healed. But then I want you to imagine this. They're on the roof, right? And they've cut this hole and they've lowered their friend in, which now you just picture like four faces looking down, right? (laughs) Kind of staring down at what's going on. And, and, And Jesus walks over to the man. But instead of telling him, take up your mat and walk, Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven, and I wish I could have seen the look on those four faces when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Because I'm sure the paralytic and his buddies were all thinking, oh, okay, great, thank you for that, but clearly I have a little more pressing need than my sins being forgiven, right? Like, clearly there's something else going on here. Like, like I've been lowered down through a roof into a crowded room of people in hopes of being healed, and instead, Jesus, you have walked up and you have offered me forgiveness? What in the world is going on? And let me just ask the question, why would Jesus do this? I mean, clearly, he has a reputation. Clearly, this man's a paralytic. Everybody knows what the expectation is, and rather than just heal him and let him be this miraculous testimony to God's grace, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Why does he do it? He's doing it to make a point. Anyone who can see understands that this man has a more immediate need. But the point that Jesus is making is this. No, you don't. No, you don't. I know that you think that if you could walk again, everything would be fixed that life would be rainbows and unicorns, that everything would be perfect, that every day would be great, that you would never have a problem again. But inevitably, what Jesus is pointing out to us is that if I did this for you, if I simply did what you thought I should do for you, you would be right back here in four or five weeks. And there would be one more thing that you knew, if, you, if I could just fix it, then life would be perfect again what he's actually saying is something that's extraordinarily important to us. He is making it clear to to this man and to everyone in the room that no material prosperity, no physical condition, nothing is more important than having a reconciled, vibrant, real friendship, relationship with God. That's the most important thing. That's the most crucial thing. Now, it's important to keep in mind that he does heal the guy's body. I think that's really important to know. As we read this story, you see that he actually does that. And it's also critically important to know that the Bible does not promote ancient Gnosticism that says that the body doesn't matter. The Gnostics believed that the body was a prison to the soul and that someday the soul would be liberated and what happens here doesn't matter, that poverty and disease don't matter, that the physical doesn't matter. Let me just say this. The Bible doesn't teach that and Jesus isn't promoting that. That sort of view. The physicality of our future and this material universe that we live in are a part of the biblical understanding of our life. We are material and physical stuff matters. But having said that, what Jesus is saying is that the, as important as the physical may be, it is still not the primary need of humanity. It is still not the most important thing. Human beings Need to be relationally connected to their Creator. That relationship that we have with God has to be restored. That's the primary need of every human heart. We need to be reconciled to God. And that happens based on what Jesus is showing us when you and I receive forgiveness. When we experience that forgiveness, Now, I can imagine somebody arguing with this. Maybe the same way this man could have argued. Do you see me? Do you realize what my life has been like? Do you realize what my life has been like? Somebody might say, you might read the story and somebody might say, listen, you don't understand that I was treated horribly by somebody. I was treated horribly by somebody and I did the right thing over and over and over again. I did the right thing and I was wronged by that person. And what I need, if, if you wanna know Jesus, what I really need is some justice. Like I would feel a lot better if there was some justice and that person got what they deserved, that would be so much better. But what Jesus knows is this. The one way that a person who mistreated us can really win, can really destroy us, can really still have the upper hand the rest of our life is if we never forgive them. That's how they win. Maybe you've heard this saying that bitterness is the poison you drink hoping the other person is going to drop dead. Right? That attitude will completely destroy you. But here's the challenge. We all have somebody we need to forgive, don't we? We all do. We all have somebody who did something. We all have somebody who said something. We all have somebody who took something. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a group of people, and when you hear their name or when something jostles that memory and they come back, there's that thing that rises up inside of you, that, that, that feeling of bitterness and anger and, and maybe even hatred or just frustration or angst or injustice, maybe those things rise up. And the question is, how? How do you forgive that person? How do you forgive them? Literally, one of the headlines in the New York Times this week, just probably 13, 14 hours ago, can a family forgive murder? It's actually a story that hits really close to home because it's actually about an individual who lives right here in our community. The New York Times writing an article about somebody living in our community and whether or not a family can forgive what he did. How do you forgive somebody who killed somebody in your family? By the way, I don't mean to go so deep so early in the message, but here we are, okay? And this might be heavy, but it's true, and I'm committed to giving you the truth, and so here it is. You can never forgive somebody if you feel superior to them. You can never forgive somebody as long as you feel superior to them. I want you to think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. It won't happen. It just, it can't happen. And maybe you say to yourself, well, no, 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 I don't feel superior. I've never thought of that word. I wouldn't describe myself as superior. I feel wronged. I feel wronged in this. Like, that, that may be true. But if there is a part of you where you say, I would never be the kind of person that would do that to another person, I would never do that kind of thing to another human being. You may not realize it, but deep down, when you say something like that, you believe that you're somehow better than them. And that's actually where we find the power of the gospel and the beauty of what Jesus does for us. See, the only way that you can ever possibly forgive anyone is if you have both the humility and the affirmation that comes through the gospel. Why? Let me explain this. Think about what the gospel does for you. Well, the gospel, when you understand what Jesus has done, when you understand what he had to do for us, it takes you down to the dust. It takes you to the lowest point, right? It says, listen, you are so broken as a human being that you actually deserved the worst. Like that's who you are doesn't matter how good you think you are, even at your best, even when you can point to people that you think are worse than you, you still are in that condition. That's what the gospel does. It drives you to that point. But then simultaneously, in the exact same moment, it says that through Jesus, you are raised from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs, that you are loved that you are accepted as you are, that you are forgiven in spite of all your brokenness. So the gospel says you're incredibly broken, but you're also incredibly loved and accepted. And so it gives us the capacity to forgive because it tells us, first of all, it says, listen, you're no different than anybody else. You're no different than the person who wounded you. Maybe you don't wound in that way, but you still wound. You're still just as broken. There's still things in your life And at the same time, the gospel gives us confidence to move towards forgiveness because we are supremely confident in God's love for us. When you and I understand just how deeply God loves us and is for us, it allows us to move into things that we thought were impossible before that love. We are able to offer that. And we can be humble and confident in the same moment. That's what the gospel does to us. Do you you realize how, how radically our life begins to shift when we experience forgiveness and then we begin to extend forgiveness in the same way that we've experienced it? There's a lightness that comes over us, there's a burden that Jesus promised would be lifted off of our shoulders. There's a burden that gets lifted off our shoulders when we begin to extend the same kind of forgiveness that was extended to us, to those who have hurt us the most. So, so as immediate as we might believe the acute pain is that's in front of us, Jesus in this moment surprises us and says, can we just start, like before we go anywhere with your life, can we just start with forgiveness? Can we just start with love? Can we start with you knowing that you are accepted? So that's the first surprise in the story. You look at this and Jesus just says, no, 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 we gotta start at a place you never imagined, right? And, And then he surprises the readers, those of us that are reading this, and maybe you missed this, but I want you to see this. I want you to notice something about the forgiveness that gets extended to this man by Jesus. He doesn't ask for it. I need you to let this sink in deep. He doesn't ask for it. He doesn't jump through any hoops for it. He doesn't pray a magic prayer for it. He doesn't do anything for it. It's not even what he and his friends are asking for, but Jesus just gives it. Or or, or let me remind you of this. Um, If you go back to the story that we looked at last week, the woman in Simon's house who's anointing the feet of Jesus, in Luke chapter seven, verse 48, we read these words in that account. I skipped it last week to cover it this week. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. What did she do before that moment? She didn't ask for it. She didn't pray a magic prayer for it. She simply came and washed the feet of Jesus. Do you realize how scandalous this is? Because as long as human beings have been wandering this planet called Earth, we have been devising regulations and rules that need to be followed in order to appease the gods. And we've been making lists of what to do and what not to do in order to keep him happy with us. And and even within the walls of Christendom, we've done the same thing. We've constructed these systems that we follow. Why? Because the default mode of the human heart is to take it upon ourselves. To make this about something that I have done. To take responsibility for what's going on. So of course there's something that we have to do to get this love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Right? That kind of love, that kind of acceptance, that kind of forgiveness, that can't come free. So somebody has to do something, right? But so aggressive and so scandalous is the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus that he thrusts it on the man before he even realizes that that's his primary need. Jesus knows what we need, right? (laughs) He knows what we need and he gives it to us aggressively. (laughs) He is eager to give us the love we're looking for and the acceptance that we're striving for and the forgiveness that our hearts know we actually need. I've been around the planet um, a few times now. Um, I've been here a little while, like not just here, I've been here, gone around the sun a couple times, you know? And when you've been here a minute as a human being, you start to make some observation and there's something that I've noticed about all of us. We all we all have a sense of condemnation that we can't shut off. Uh, We all have a voice that says, why'd you say that? You shouldn't have said that. Why'd you say that sort of thing? We all have those experiences, right? We all, all of us, at different moments in our life, we get this nagging sense that we haven't lived up to our potential. Like, there was more we could have done, and we just haven't quite gotten there. When I was in my 20s, people would say I had potential. When I was in my 30s, when they said that, it felt like condemnation, right? Because maybe I should have fulfilled it by then, right? Alex says amen to that one, right? Hmm. We all know what it's like to feel guilt. We all know what it's like to feel shame. Even when we have worked our hardest to avoid those things, we know what it feels like. I remember five or six years ago, I was actually upstairs in this building. I wasn't the pastor here. Uh, I was training some leaders and we happened to be doing the training in this building. And before one of the sessions, some colleagues and I were sitting around and we were getting deep together, trusted friends talking about real stuff, and at that particular time in my life, I was leading a church that was exploding, growing really rapidly. I was consulting in the business community. I was leading a project in New York City that took me there 30, 40, 50 days a year. And I was training these leaders that I was here training. I was doing all these different things. And I started sharing openly with, with this group of people about being conflicted about what I needed to let go of. Like, I need, I need to let go of something, but I don't know what it is. And so I was kind of processing. And I'll never forget this. A friend of mine, his name is Dave Chandler, he's a pastor in Moses Lake, Washington. I've known him for 20 years. He looked at me, and I'm just trying to sort through what I should quit. And he just looked me right in the eyes and he goes, Brad, what are you trying to prove? And I was mad. Because <laughs> I thought, I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm not, and, 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 and so I It just, I I looked him in the eyes and I said, nothing. I'm not trying to prove anything. But the question hung with me. Not just like that week. That question hung with me for the next couple of years. It just stuck there because I knew it wasn't nothing. The only thing that was nothing was my inability to name what it was I was trying to prove. I couldn't figure it out. I didn't, there wasn't anything. I couldn't point and say, I'm trying to make my dad happy. I'm trying not to let my mom down. I couldn't do any of that stuff. Couldn't get into my family of origin. There was none of that sort of stuff. All it was, was me just sitting there going, I don't have a name for it, but deep down, you know what I knew? He was right. He was right. No one in their right mind does all that I was doing without trying to prove something to someone. So you you, you see that striving in our lives. You see the way those failures just linger in our stories or the way that shame just hits different, that guilt just hits at a level that you're like, all of it comes back to this. And Jesus, he knows it before we even speak it. All we do in the whole equation is we just receive it. We just receive it. That's the only thing we're responsible to do, to to take that love, to take that acceptance, to take that forgiveness and absorb it like a sponge that's being released in a pool of water. We just absorb that love and we absorb that acceptance and we absorb that forgiveness and we let it sink deep into our bones, so deep into our core that it just begins to fundamentally change how we move through our days. To every reader who has ever read this, Jesus surprises them by saying, I'm going to give you what you don't know you want, but it's everything that you're looking for. That's what he says. Which leaves us with one final group, these religious leaders. What are they shocked by? The shock is pretty clear, by the way, because they state it. Notice verse seven. They say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they're incredulous in this moment, right? And they're absolutely correct. They're shocked, but they're absolutely right. Let me put it this way. Uh, let, Let me just give this illustration. If Casey and TJ and I were hanging out and Casey punches TJ in the face, right? So TJ's walking around bloody nose and I walk up to Casey and I say, Casey, your sins are forgiven. What's TJ gonna do? who are you to forgive his sins, right? He sinned against me. He didn't sin against you, Brad. What business do you have telling Casey his sins are forgiven, right? Like TJ is gonna, he's gonna argue with that. If if, if Jesus says to somebody who hasn't sinned against him observably as a human being, he's never met this guy. If he says your sins are forgiven, what is he actually saying? When he says this, those scribes and Pharisees, they knew what he was saying. He's saying, All sins are against me. They're all against me. Because you can only forgive sins that are against you. So when Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven, that means he's assuming the posture of being God because God is the only person who could forgive the sins of somebody that he's never met before. That's what they're saying in this moment. And so they're incredulous. Jesus is saying, Yep, that's me. That's who I am. And so they are utterly shocked and they're upset. But Jesus doesn't leave it at that, right? Instead, he turns and he says, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? And then he asks them this question. It's kind of a riddle. Which is easier, to say to a paralytic that your sins are forgiven or to say, Take up your mat and walk? Which is more difficult to say? It's kind of an interesting question, right? Which is easier? How do you answer that question? I actually sat for a little bit this week and thought, I don't know that I know the answer to that question. Which one is easier, right? And I started diving into it. And there's something really beautiful about the answer to this question. And it's connected to the word say. Jesus says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk?" Why does that matter? Why does that word matter? I know we might be wading into some deeper theological waters here, but here's what we need to understand. When it comes to God, his words are his deeds. They're one and the same. In Genesis, it doesn't say um, that God said, let there be light. And then like in verse four, he said, so let's get out there and start making some light together. No, he said, let there be light and there was light. His words are his actions. I I could give you several other examples of this, but, but when God says something, it happens. God's word is his action. When he speaks something, it happens. So, this is so beautiful, and I just want you to wrap your brain around this, especially if you ever struggle with the tangible love that Jesus has for you, this is really gonna clear some things up for you. For Jesus to say, rise up, take up your mat and walk, that actually is easier. That's actually the easier thing to say because in order to say, son, your sins are forgiven, that meant that something would have to be done in order to make that statement possible. Why? Because his words are his actions. Which means this, long before Jesus would ever, ever go to the cross, the decision had already been made that he would. He would. When he said, Your sins are forgiven, he was looking to the future and realizing, I know exactly where this thing is headed, but I love you that much. Any miracle worker could have healed somebody, but only the Savior of the world who was on his way to a torturous death can possibly say, My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. So friends, we ache. We ache in our bones as human beings. And our friends, they think they know what we need. And we read books on how to resolve the pain and, and we, we think one more piece of information is gonna, gonna fix this thing. But Jesus knows we were made to walk We were made to walk, but we were made to walk with God. And shockingly, before we ever ask, he offers us his love and his acceptance, his forgiveness. He offers us a hand and says, would you join me in walking with me? And all we have to do is just say yes to all of it. Are you with me? Amen. Would you pray with me? I don't know what any of us brought in to this space tonight. I simply know what I bring in tonight. And I can guess based on what I bring in tonight that there's probably a few of us in the room that need to receive the forgiveness and the love and the acceptance that Jesus offers. And some of you, maybe it's the first time. Maybe it's, maybe you've never actually just said, you know what, I need this from Jesus. I need his forgiveness. And maybe for the first time you're hearing those words and for the first time you're saying yes. And I just want to encourage you to lean into that. You can trust him with that. But others of us Maybe we said yes five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But in the time since, we have started white knuckling it. We've gotten stressed. We've gotten anxious. We felt the shame. We felt the guilt. We felt like we haven't achieved enough. We feel these feelings, the ache in our bones, and, and we're, we're just ignoring what we've already been given. And so maybe for those of us that have been walking in faith, tonight's a night when we just stop and say, Lord, I just need your forgiveness to wash over me again. I just need to be reminded of the extent of your love. I need to walk with the awareness of your radical acceptance. Jesus, we receive from you what you know we need before we ever say it. Would you be, would you be everything that you promise to be in our lives. In your name, amen. Amen, would you stand with me? Before you take off tonight, let me just say a couple things. We always have elders in the room. Um, sometimes when we're in a space like this, uh, I, I, you know, and let me, just, let me just back up for a second. I don't ever take myself too seriously but I take the spirit of God seriously. And I think when you and I gather in a space and we open up our hearts and say, God, would you move? Sometimes there's things that get stirred in us that um, it's not, maybe it's not like culturally normal to do this, but it's certainly biblically normal to linger and to say, I think I need to sort through some things. So if there's ever a night, ever a time when we gather and there's just something God's doing in your heart, I just encourage you to like let that linger. And if you ever want to pray with somebody or talk with somebody, we have elders, they wear lanyards, they walk around. They're more than willing just to even just process and say, like, if you just need a sounding board, I just want to let you know that. Second thing is this. Um, we have something, I didn't bring it with me, but um, we have something called the Lectio Divina, which is a devotional that as the 21 days of fasting and prayer come to an end, it's just something that you can do to just hear God's word and then journal and and just really walk with God on a daily basis and we're gonna talk more about that in the probably years to come but um, we've got those available at our resource center. You can pick those up. They're like 12 or 14 bucks or something Um, but I just encourage you to, to get those if you're looking for something to guide you in this year but now the benediction, let me offer this to you tonight before you go. May you be men and women live the next couple of days really differently because you have seen, you've witnessed the love of Jesus, and you have been embraced by his acceptance, and you have said yes to his forgiveness in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here tonight. Please feel free to linger, talk to some friends, hang out, don't just run to the parking lot. We need human connection and relationships, so do that and we'll see you guys next